left, and then one book more. There's this for you guys. Yeah. Do we have enough for? Oh yeah, we have plenty. Okay. <clears throat> and Blake will pass them out. It's fun to have your own Bibles that you own. That way, you can mark them up and draw arrows and circles and stuff. And match match. Oh. What, oh, because how they're numbered? Well, I mean, not just that, but what they are. The first couple are, yeah, split into two in some cases and not in others. Yeah. Well, and it's unless I'm incorrect about that. Uh, or just not included as commandments, maybe, in, in okay. some versions. I th it's all there in the text. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same text. But certainly translations will handle sentences differently. But... The material's all there, but it's very differently, uh, yeah, understood and, yep, yeah. Well, we can get going. I think this is our class tonight. So welcome, everyone. Here's the meditation. It's not in your notes. Um, a couple of introductory remarks first. I'm going to use the word figure several times tonight. And uh, I wish I had a, anybody else have a coffee cup here? Okay. One or a few. Another word. No, this is good. I got it. another word for figure. Kinda. Well, another related word is contour. Everybody knows what a contour. The outline of a thing. So the outline of a coffee cup is. You know, this one starts small, slants up, and you know the con the out the outline or silhouette of it. And it's different from hers and yours. And uh, we all know they're coffee cups, but they have different contours. When things are contoured. Similarly, in scriptures across, like in Exodus or in a gospel, two, two things are contoured the same. We kind of think to ourselves, okay, the scripture author is making a point here that one is a figure of the other. Sometimes we use the word type, but that's a little different. But So I just I want to alert you to that, that um, we'll talk about things that have contours tonight or that are figures. This is a figure of that, and I just want you to know what's coming. Uh, so we use the word figure to refer to stories whose contours are affiliated with and elaborate on each other. So two different stories, but they have similar contours. Here is the meditation. It's just a, a paragraph from St. Melito, Melito, M-E-L-I-T-O, of Sardis from the second century. It's not in your notes. You can just listen. For he who was led away as a lamb and who was sacrificed as a sheep by himself delivered us from servitude to the world as from the land of Egypt and released us from bondage to the devil as from the hand of Pharaoh and sealed our souls by his own spirit and the members of our bodies by his own blood. This is he who is the Passover of our salvation. He is the silent lamb the lamb that was slaughtered, the lamb born of Mary, the fair ewe. She's the fair ewe, female sheep. He was taken from the flock, dragged off to be slaughtered, slain during the evening, and buried at night. So he's clearly talking about the Exodus story and the lamb that each 
family was to take and, and sacrifice for the Passover meal before they escaped out of Egypt, if you know the story at all. But he's linking it because of the contours with Jesus' passion, right? So he's saying Jesus, whom we read about in the New Testament, was the lamb that was slaughtered in the Exodus. No bone of his was broken. His body in the earth knew no corruption. Jesus is going back and forth between Exodus and New Testament. He rose from the dead and raised up humankind from the depths of the tomb, just like Israel from the bowels of Egypt. So that's just a, it's, it's, it's an excerpt from a homily that St. Melito of Sardis preached sometime in the 100s, really, really early. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Lord, we ask for eyes to see you, Jesus, revealing yourself to us in the two main texts that we'll look at tonight, from Exodus, in the story of Moses and the Israelites, the lamb, the bread from heaven that you provide, that you are. We ask, as you draw us closer to that bread, which is your body, that you will help us to, to make the journey and to see you with fresh eyes and hear you with fresh ears and for our hearts to be open that we might receive you in a special way. Please visit us in a special way this evening. Help me to be clear. Help us all to be alert. We ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The other thing I was going to alert you to as a possible alternative meditation is from Exodus 19. So this is why you have your Bible. So if you turn to the second book of the whole Bible, also all the way to the left, first one's Genesis, then we come to Exodus chapter 19. I thought it would be fun that <clears throat> there's an interesting, and it makes really clumsy writing if you're, if you're counting. Like really good writers don't repeat things unnecessarily. They find different words, right? That's kind of a, a, a sign of a skilled writer. Uh, not in Hebrew. No, we, we like to repeat stuff. So if in 19, I just want to, I want your eyes to skim down through. I'm going to guide your eyes, and but I want you to see it. And if you have pencil, I, I don't, don't use pen because these aren't our Bibles, but it's fun to, to highlight them somehow or to make a tick mark. So chapter 19, Exodus 19, starting in verse 2, kind of the end of it. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses and if it was your own Bible, I would tell you to circle, went up. And yours might read a little differently from mine, but something like went up or yeah, went up to God. Okay, scroll all the way down to verse 11. Uh, maybe we'll catch uh, that paragraph there at the end of verse 9. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai, in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up. Okay, skip over to verse the end of verse 13. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So that's their signal. Now it's okay to come up. Everybody out. Skip on down to verse 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended. He had come down on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. Skip down to 20. The Lord came down. If you're circling all these, you're going to have a bunch of pencil circles in your text. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses had to go up. And that's what he does. He goes up. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down. <laughs> Wait, I just got here. What exercise? It's not a small mountain. 
And warn the people lest they break through the Lord, and so on and so forth. To 23, verse 23. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. We're just doing what you told us to do. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down. <laughs> so there's a lot of going up and coming down, up and down, up. Here's the punchline. If Sinai is the place where God shows up and delivers his word to the people, there is a likeness. The contour of that story is, can be seen in the mass when you're looking at the front, where there is an interplay of things going up and coming down and going up and coming down. We, when we're at mass, are in the presence of a God who is keen to interact with us, to come down to us, to have us come up to him, to, to, to interface. Back and forth we go. This is a very relational God, the God of the Old Testament. He gets a bad rap sometimes. People think that the God of the Old Testament is just harsh. The warrior God is removed and aloof and uninvolved. Not so. Look at the details. Circle all that goes up, comes down. You know, he's very much involved. He wants to interact. Thought that would be encouraging to, to see from a very early book. There's a, kind of a bit of that in everything that follows this evening. <clears throat> Put this here for now. Probably be back into it in a minute. Thought it would be well, though, um, to recap where we've been and where we are. So to your notes for the first time now, just a summary so far uh, of the great story. We're calling this in, in four parts. Um, I think we have five or six parts, seven parts, however many parts there are. Seven? Seven's a good number. Okay, so we're in part four this evening. Where we've been, well, we, we saw that the earth was created to be a temple in which God and mankind will eventually enjoy fellowship. And I have asterisks there on purpose because when we think about God as we meet him, he's spiritual, he's purely spirit. He's not a material entity. And yet he creates and he exists in a spiritual realm we call heaven. It's not embodied, it's not material, it's immaterial. But he creates a material world, physical. I just reminded myself of Madonna for all you people who back way back in the 80s. A material girl living in a material world, something like that. I don't know. That dates me. Anyway, mankind is material. We are substance. We take up space here. You can't be here because I'm here. If you were to be here, I have to move. Uh, God's not limited in that way. And it, we're here now, uh, but there is no beginning or ending with God. He just always is and was. But he wants, he creates something outside of himself to share himself with. And, and he creates a, a place for that to happen. So he's thinking incarnation, I think, before the creation of the world. He knows someday he's going to break into this and come be. Uh, for fellowship. But that temple, sadly, was corrupted by the first sin. The whole world broke. God initiates, letter C, his mission to address all that has been broken and taken. That's what Satan did. He stole and he broke on purpose. And God means to reclaim it. It's not yours, it's mine. And I don't abandon it or abdicate it. That's what bad bosses or managers or dads do. 
our moms. They abandoned their, their homes and their, their children. That's not God. God's going to reclaim it and fix it. He's going to heal it. So he calls Abram, whose name changes to Abraham, to be his man, to bless all the families of the earth. From the one come the many. Through the one, the many. All the families of the earth. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name also is changed to Israel. It means struggles with God or contends against God. He gets it when he has this wrestling match at night with an angel or some messenger. And the me- so the messenger has taken corporal forms. You know, they're actually physically duking it out, right? And it, it goes all night long. It's a long match. And Jacob's name gets changed to Israel to tell the story of what just happened. So if it's the case that Israel, that Jacob wrestled with God, because that's what his name means now, and who was it with whom he was wrestling? Because this is not just a spirit, a phantasm. This is a person, a physical human being. Well, is this an early sighting of the second person of the Trinity in Genesis? Jesus. Is he wrestling with Jesus? Anyway, Jacob changes, his name is changed to Israel. He has 12 sons, become the the 12 tribes of Israel, who are called to be not God's man, but God's people, comprising really all the families of the earth. Israel, there's a big debate in the academy right now in Old Testament studies about the word Israel in the Old Testament. Does it just mean the ethnic people that descend from Abraham? Or is it bigger than that? And and I think the, the tide is turning to see the latter of those two is the most likely understanding. That Israel doesn't just mean ethnic, genetic Jews or Israelites, which excludes all of us Gentiles, but actually can mean and, and does come to mean in the biblical text something a lot bigger, on par with what, what God told Abram. He's making all the families of the earth are going to become part of this covenant. Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob, winds up down in Egypt. He's the one that gets thrown in the well. He gets the coat of many colors. Remember that story? If you've read your Genesis, uh, and he t- tells his brothers, I had a dream that I was made greater than all y'all. <laughs> so what do they do? They throw him in a pit. Like, Screw you. Um, you and your, your big head. And, uh, but he winds up in Egypt, becomes second in command to Pharaoh, <clears throat> secures bread for all of the people, the land when the, when the, when the famine besets the whole world. And uh, it's an interesting little typology, little contour similarity there between what Joseph in the Old Testament the 11th son of Jacob does, and what Joseph in the New Testament does with Jesus. So Joseph in the New Testament takes Jesus. So Herod, when Jesus is born, sends out an edict. I'm going to you know, tell me where all the firstborn are so I can kill them because I'm worried, I'm threatened by this one who's going to become a king. Right? What does Joseph do? He protects Jesus. Angel tells him what to do. But he does it. He takes him to Egypt and then to protect him and then brings him back at the right time. Joseph in the Old Testament, 11th son of Jacob, different guy, centuries apart, is in Egypt. And what is he doing? He's securing grain for bread, for the feeding of the world. Jesus is the bread of life. What Joseph in the New Testament was doing is the same thing that Joseph in the Old Testament was doing. So there, there's a... One is a figure of the other. The contours of the stories are the same. Anyway, so you wind up in Egypt, and Israel journeys down for bread. Israel has the, all the 12, the 12 sons, uh, well, the other, the other 11, I guess. 
They all journey down for bread, and they're eventually swallowed up there, and they languish there for many years. And God sends Moses down to Egypt to deliver them up out of Egypt. And there's a series of plagues that ensues. God demonstrates his lordship over creation and over Pharaoh and these plagues. And at the height of the crescendo of these plagues, the Passover is instituted as a feast forever. And the text repeats that word forever a lot of times. And <clears throat> you get the idea that we have a long Bible, but apparently there's never a time when Passover gets traded out for anything else. So we Catholics uh, or Bible people kind of have fun chasing out the theme of what we come to know as the Eucharist in the New Testament, what Jesus does, the, the new Passover, which is sometimes called the Last Supper, as just the continuation of the Passover. It's, it's kind of reconstituted, but it's the same meal, and it's doing the same kind of thing. It's just that now this, the God who directed Moses has, has um, moved from the space of heaven, the immaterial space, to break into the story and become one of the main characters. And then he reinstitutes, or reconstitutes the Passover, now calling it Eucharist, the Thanksgiving. So I've, I've titled the, the next section where we'll look at two main texts, Exodus 12 and Exodus 16. The biblical theme of Eucharist, dot, 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 in Exodus. We don't think of Eucharist as an Old Testament idea, but if we think of, of uh, the one story that was as a story that is and so on, then we'll, uh, we'll have it. So the Passover as a figure of the Eucharist, which we read about in Exodus 12. And I have just here a bunch of talking points, really. Uh, you can have your Bibles open to Exodus 12. If you, uh, let's just, so we started in 19 tonight, but if you just flip back. Seven chapters. <clears throat> we'll just kind of spot down through and grab some of the verses. You'll see them in bold most of the time. I think I remember to bold most of them. The Passover takes place prior to their exodus from Egypt, which I have a slash mark. Uh, exodus or resurrection. The exodus or resurrection of Israel from Egypt. Um, like from the dead in Egypt. Like e Egypt is almost like the grave in the story. Uh, they're alive, they go down, and they have to be brought back up. It is in the south uh, from where they are, I guess, which makes sense. Um, and then I have the little two slash marks. That just means parallel that with the Last Supper, which in the New Testament takes place prior to Jesus' resurrection, the resurrection of the Israelite Jesus from death. So there are similar features or components in each story. And authors write stuff that way so that we'll see it, so that we'll see that the same God is at work across time, across stories, and is really in control of the entire created order. But there's another reason that authors do that. <clears throat> because I, the New Testament accounts are pretty short. It's about a third of the Bible, right? I mean, here's where my New Testament starts. Uh, I'm a couple pages off, but you get the idea. So the rest of it is Old Testament. And that's a pretty decent dis discrepancy, right? Why is the New Testament so short? Well, the New Testament often, we say, refers to the Old Testament, but also defers. It says, here, uh, this has already been said. Go read the Old Testament for the rest of the details. So 
But we don't have a lot about Mary in the New Testament, just a few bits in the Gospels. Almost nothing about St. Joseph. Never says anything. He doesn't get any lines in the, in the script. But we've got a lot of women in the Old Testament, Miriam, Rahab, Judith, Esther, Ruth, etc., that are putting on display for us features of our Blessed Mother that we're supposed to know about. And what's more, they were up and running long before our Blessed Mother came on the scene. Similarly with Jesus. Uh, the Gospels, while there are four of them, so there's a lot of attention there, but again, the New Testament is pretty small. We have all these characters in the Old Testament. We have a Job, we have a Solomon, we have a David, uh, and others that are all putting on display for us things that we're supposed to know that fill out our understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus is like and what he's up to. So it's important to be Old Testament people, not just New Testament people as Catholics, as Christians, really. Our Bible is big, and we need to avail ourselves. So, sorry, that was a little bit of a soapbox. But um, I'm pointing out the similarities so that we'll see, we'll start to, to have eyes to see when stories are resonating with each other. Almost like a tapestry. If you, you see a thread with a neat color over here, and you grab hold of it and jerk it, you're going to see the tapestry move over here. And, and uh, quilt tapestry, am I using the right word? Whatever. Anyway, you'll see, you'll see things that are connected. Uh, sacrifice in chapter 12, verses 21 to 23. So I got to go back there because I lost my page. So Passover blood. Uh, oh, no, I do mean to read them because I don't have the text proper. Uh, yeah, so Exodus 12, 21. Where am I here? Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And so hyssop, like a branch uh, with a leafy end. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, so we're talking about a horizontal piece of wood and a vertical couple of pieces of wood. And that there's blood all over these. He's going to pass through over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this. How far am I going here? Just to 23. Okay, so we'll cut off there. So the Passover blood in your notes here of the sacrificial lamb, interestingly, was not consumed. They didn't drink it. But rather, it was applied to the external doorposts and lintels of houses of Israelites to save them from the angel of death. Whereas, paralleling this, similar contours here, the Eucharistic blood of the true lamb is consumed. Water becomes wine. Wine becomes blood. And celebration at the Mass. It's consumed, and therefore it's applied to our interior house, to the framework of our lives. And that's what blood does. It covers over and it cleanses and recasts this house as a house protected by God and owned by God. If you consume that, that's what's going on in you, inside of you. That's why it's a gift in this way. There's an interplay. Did I get through that one? Yeah, yeah. Okay. There's an interplay in 43 to 51. We, I don't know. Yeah, we'll, we'll read it. So chapter 12. So I'm at, toward the end of chapter 12, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute, the rule of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. <gasps> it's exclusive. 
But every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Seems really prejudicial. Shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come, let them receive the sign of the covenant. Let them come into the covenant. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. So his status changes. His race, his background didn't change, did it? But his status did. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. And all the people did that. So here we have little I in your notes. Communion sharpened. Uh, there are some rules here. No foreigner or sojourner or hired servant. That seems in our minds, I think, you know, if we're really paying attention, to go against God's mission to redeem all peoples through Abraham's offspring. Didn't he say to Abraham, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth through you? What up with this thing? Though perhaps it might be referring to somebody who is unworthy to receive, not in a racial sense, but in a religious one. One who is a foreigner to this covenant God has established with the people he has called out of Egypt. And spoiler alert, there were some Egyptians who came along with the Israelites too. So even back then in the exodus from Egypt, there were those who were realizing that the winter God was not Pharaoh. <laughs> and we need to switch sides. So um, yeah, that's when it's good to be a bandwagon jumper. 1 Corinthians corresponds to this up in the New Testament. St. Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And here, the Lord in Exodus is just taking care to stipulate what counts as worthy and unworthy. You've got to be a member of the covenant. You've got to be initiated. That's why you're all here. <laughs> the communion, we'll come back to that in a second. Don't worry, it all resolves itself in this text. The communion is unbroken, we learn in verse 46. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house. It all stays together. What house is the key word there. Uh, one group of people. It seems to change the subject from the flow of verses 44 to 45, but actually it's given as commentary to explain the prohibition. No flesh shall go outside the house. No bone shall be broken. The communion shall remain as such. It remains a communion instead of a division. So communion is the name of the game. And this corresponds then um, to say what John says in 1936 when he's describing what happens to Jesus as he's hanging on the cross, dying. Uh, these things took place that the scripture might be... Oh, so, so the backstory is that the soldiers say, hey, it's getting late. It's, it's Miller time. And uh, we got to get done with this crucifixion thing. Let, and they're, they're hanging on by when you're being crucified. You, you know, you're, it's very painful to put any weight on your feet because you got nails through them, but you can't breathe because you're hanging there and you're suffocating. So they would suspend themselves for as long as they could hold out, and then they would, let, and they would just do this for hours, trying to stay alive. It's really gruesome. So the soldiers would come along and break their legs. So they couldn't do that anymore, and they'd just die by suffocation. This, but not Jesus. Sorry if that was a little much. That's, this, is, this is reality. If you've seen the Passion, uh, not one of his bones will be broken. 
These things took place that scripture might be fulfilled. The lamb's bones shall not be broken. That starts in Exodus. Why not break the bones? Because Jesus' own body represents the house of God. And the house of God cannot be divided, can't come apart. The framework of it needs to be, needs to have its integrity maintained. Paul asks rhetorically in 1 Corinthians, is Christ divided? He's getting these 1 Corinthians, well, the Corinthian church, they can't get along with each other. <laughs> Come on, you guys, get it together, he says. Is Christ divided? No. So get along. And then later in chapter 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many across the earth are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So Paul's reaching back to Exodus and he's grabbing this backstory and saying, look, there's, there's more here. Finally, so the communion is sharpened, it's unbroken, and it's expanded. Verse 48. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover, there's a way. A stranger who sojourns with you may receive, if he's brought near and made a native of the covenant people by the sign of the covenant. Then it was circumcision. Now it's baptism and confirmation. But where does baptism come from? Where do these people come from? Where are these people about to go? Through the sea, right? Israel, I mean, they're getting ready. They're, this is the last meal, and they're about to go through the sea and be saved through water, like Noah uh, back in Genesis uh, 8. The alternative for these people who are outside the covenant is to remain unworthy and then to receive, if one does, in an unworthy manner. Like you can always try and break into the covenant community and get some. I've heard of people who do that. Come to Mass and pretend like you're Catholic and then receive. But lo, 1 Corinthians 11, one chapter later, here Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But do a personal examination first. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It's code for, yeah, or fallen asleep, some people. Some people might have. I don't know what NAB says. What does it say? Well, you don't have to look it up, Blake, if you want to. You can. Some versions will say that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have fallen asleep, but others say have died. So this is a life or death matter. It's for the benefit of the potential worshiper that the church says, hey, uh, in keeping with Exodus 12 and Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, if you're not Catholic, if you're not prepared to receive, or if, even if you are, but you haven't done an examination of conscience, and you're not you're not sure if you're ready. Just just hold off. It's okay uh, for your benefit. Actually, um, let's get some things. Make, make sure that things are straightened out first. So then comes verse forty-eight to clarify things. Outsiders are welcomed. So I guess this is kind of a repeat of three. They're welcomed in accordance with God's always intentions vis-a-vis -vis Abraham. That is all the families of the earth. So. There is this way that's made. Now we call it baptism and confirmation. And there it was circumcision. So that's the kind of an overview of Exodus 12 and the first instance of the Passover that's sort of the bedrock for what we celebrate as the Eucharist. We've got a little time before we jump into 
the other episode I have for tonight, which is Exodus 16. Any points of clarification or questions? The question was regarding what inclusion in the covenant meant back in its original prescription and how we reconcile that with our understanding of Christian inclusion now. Well, well, they need to be. So Paul is adding to this, um, this whole, he's, he's developing it further, this unworthy, worthy thing. Initially, I mean, Exodus 12 makes clear that nobody who's not circumcised should be availing him or herself to. Women weren't circumcised, but if you were part of a family, um, if, if, a, you know, if a male head of household, wife's uh, spouse, daughters, um, servants, male, female, so on, your whole household could come in if you are circumcised and all your male servants or people in your house are circumcised. This is what is required, this preparatory stage before you're able to enter in, in order to enter the covenant. Um, baptism is, so I don't know if we talked about Paul is in Colossians where he links the two, circumcision and baptism. There's some physical activity that makes it possible for the spiritual reality to take place. So it's the spiritual reality through the physical. In this case of circumcision, it's obvious. There's a, not to be too graphic, uh, the word for making a covenant is cutting. A, you cut a covenant with somebody. That's why in Genesis 15, Abraham, uh, Abraham has this mystical late night experience where God comes to him in a dream, not in a dream, just in the dark of night. Sorry, I'm really still <clears throat> filtering this stuff out. And um, and there are animals that are cut in two. God's differentiating this from that. And, and so, and this is, the substance of the covenant then involves cutting. Um, baptism becomes kind of connects more, say, with the flood, where God washes sin away through water, uh, which is what He does in the Exodus from Egypt as well. The Israelites are going through the waters part; they go through all of the detritus and filth from their past behind them is washed away when it comes to enter the water, and they're safely through, and they rise out the other side. So there are a lot of diverse imageries kind of being brought together to, to communicate the main point that sin is dealt with in a way that involves something physical that yields then a spiritual newness, a new reality. And you'll see it. I wanted to put Baptist in your real, little Roman numeral three on, I don't know what page it is for you, our pagination is different, but... Um, about two up from the next heading, number two, Exodus 16. I, I, I uh, snuck or smuggled confirmation in there because those are the two physical activities that make one a full-fledged member of the community we call church. So, and, and they correspond to, confer- to circumcision, sorry, in the Old Testament. That's what makes one a full-fledged member of Israel. So, to Exodus 16, the great questions. I love the discussion. Uh, God's provision of mana as a figure of the Eucharist. Mana, what is this? Mana. Some people have heard of it, right? Mana. It's a transliterated word, which means it's a word from one language, Hebrew in this case, that's put into English English letters, but it's left untranslated. Oh, I think I have a typo there. 
Sorry about that. It means, literally, what is it? <laughs> it's a question. Ma in, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew language means what? Uh, who means me. So when we teach new students in Hebrew, their, um, their particles, who, me, what, ma? That's how you memorize which, which word is which. So, and then na is just the third masculine singular suffix, it. So when they say in the text, what is it? In fact, we should probably read it, Exodus 16, 1 to 36. I don't have it in your text, so feel free to turn there. <clears throat> won't take very long. Oh, uh, I'll just read an excerpt from it. Um, we'll skip up to verse 12. I have heard, so this is Exodus 16, verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know, by virtue of this, you'll know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, it's an interesting thing, and something had risen up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. <laughs> I want you to tuck that away. This idea of something ascends, but leaves something else behind for sustenance. Uh, it's not the only time we'll see that contour. When the people of Israel saw this substance, they said to one another, What is it? That's verse 15. Mana. What's it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses goes on to explain. So it means, what is it? It's a fundamentally an unknown thing. It was a mystery. And as readers, I think we're supposed to wonder along with the Israelites, not least when we ourselves present ourselves to receive the sacrament that is most veiled in mystery. We walk forward at Mass. What is this? We're supposed to have hearts of curiosity, hearts already confessing what it is, but also imploring God, show me yourself in this. I want, I want to receive you. I want to experience you. And I'm walking forward to do that. Uh, break my heart open. What is it? It's bread from heaven. Just some observations here, mostly from Lawrence Feingold, who wrote the book on the Eucharist. It's a huge tome. It came out in 18. Normal bread comes from the earth, but this one, this bread descends from above. Get that up, down again. God interacting with his people. So also the Eucharist nourishes us with a reality that, that is not from the earth. Oh man, more typos. Not from the earth or even the natural order, but from above. Of course, the answer to the question, what is it, is, as we know, Jesus. And we read this in John 6, and I have it typed out for you. Um, and there's a longer discussion, but in verse 49 to 51, Jesus says to his hearers, Your fathers ate the manna, the what is it, in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. He's talking about the, himself as bread, the bread of life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven interesting in English it's in the past tense. Is he talking about now or back in Exodus or both? If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Um, so uh, yeah, I've got, I think I've got some notes for myself in John 6 and it might not hurt for us to turn there. Um, I even have a bookmark. No, I don't. I, I just wanted to make sure we got that read, 47 through 51. 
I think actually this is the, the most controversial thing that he says, that he is identifying himself in John 6 with the manna that was eaten in the wilderness. And then the question is, well, wait a minute, but he just said that they died. And he's differentiating, aren't, isn't he, from like that bread from himself? No, the reason they died wasn't because he wasn't there and only now is he. The reason they died, the people in the wilderness, is because they sinned and they ate in an unworthy manner. This is what Paul jumps into in 1 Corinthians 11. So they eat in an unworthy manner in, back in Exodus, and that whole first generation dies as a result. So it's not that the bread was bad. <laughs> it's that their hearts were. And this is why it's so important for us to make sure that we're presenting ourselves as people who have been made ready. So this class, this formation that we're undergoing together as a, as a family, as a team, it's hugely important. Um, there's an interesting little nugget of gold in the middle of the Exodus story. So if you're still in Exodus 16, the manna story, look down at verse uh, verse 19. Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it till the morning. This bread that you, this manna that you collect. But they didn't listen to Moses, verse 20. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. What on earth is going on there? It's like this little, really specific detail that we don't know what to do with. Here's what you do with it you can keep your finger there and turn to Psalms 22. Or if you, if you don't know where Psalms is, it's kind of in the middle. Uh, I can just read it for you as well. This is the psalm that begins with the words that Jesus says on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the tradition has it that Jesus knew the Old Testament front to back. And that probably he recited the entire psalm on the cross as he hung there on Good Friday. Which is interesting. Because what's going on? as Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's reciting this psalm, is that people are below him, mocking him, passing him by, wagging their heads. The gospel writers use that word, wag their heads. They don't recognize the truth of who he is. So we read some of these lines later in that psalm. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They, mouth, they make mouths at me, like they flap their mouth. They wag their heads. We have the word wag in the gospel accounts of Jesus hanging on the cross, what people are doing. And we have this weird word worm here. Jesus saying, they, they see me as a worm. I'm a worm to them. Back to Exodus 16. What is the sin of the people? When they gather too much of this stuff, they don't recognize that it's actually, as Jesus clarifies in John 6, himself. They just think it's food. That's all that it is. And their disrespect results in their overgathering, and it breeds worms and stinks. And I think that Exodus 16, that word worm there, and in Psalm 22, 6, I think don't quote me on this, but I think those might be the only two places where we have that word, which makes you perk up and think to yourself, oh, there's probably a connection between these passages. So further corroboration that 
this one little verse in Exodus 16 is an indicator or will be an indicator for us when we read it in connection with the others that there's more going on here below the surface. This is this mana is asking a question that you as a reader are supposed to be asking. Who is this? What, what is this? It's Jesus. It's daily. We learn this in 16.4. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. It's daily. Um, mass is offered daily, come to find. It's daily bread. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6. This is how you should pray. Don't go on and on like the Pharisees do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily you, our bread, daily bread, our manna. It's only for the pilgrimage in the desert. Once the Israelites reach Canaan, manna ceases. Once the faithful reach heaven, the Eucharistic meal ceases, for we shall see and be face to face with the Lord who is the manna. And the sequence, and this is the sequence I was talking about earlier, and we're almost done. For, uh, Exodus 14 to 17, paralleled with 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4, which you don't have, but I'll just read it for you. Uh, it's Paul again. We like Paul. He's a good guy. Says lots of important things. <clears throat> Goodness. I'm having desperate troubles. Okay, here we are. This is what Paul says in 10. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the Red Sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food following this and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. So in the sequence of Exodus 14 through 17, in 14 and 15, they're delivered through water. That's the passage through the Red Sea. In chapter 16, they have the manna, that's the heavenly bread. In 17, that's the rock incident. And we learn from Numbers 20 that the Lord actually goes and stands on the rock. You can't see him, but he's there. And Moses is supposed to speak to the rock and the water is supposed to come out. But what does he do? He strikes it like Christ on the cross. That's their spiritual drink. So 14 and 15, the passage through the sea is a figure of baptism. Heavenly bread is a figure of the Eucharist, even more so than the Passover is because it's not meat. It's bread, right? The manna, and then the spiritual drink. So this is Paul's sequence. Um, well, I can have a repeat in E. I guess I, uh, I had that overdone, and then I've got just a little summation there with the Passover, uh, Passover in the Old Testament, followed by the Exodus, followed by manna, is similar to the Last Supper in the New Testament, followed by the Passion, followed by Eucharist. So all these ways that the coffee cups are looking like each other, in our, in our texts. Uh, maybe kind of a blitzkrieg at the end there, but if you have any questions, we have a little bit of time. We usually go till 8.15, right? So, or we could get out of here early. Yeah, Father? Uh, can I be brief about anything? Well, I did it, I guess, tonight. Um, the covenant confirmed. Any particular section? Uh, <clears throat> oh, I'd have to take, I mean, with the p putting the blood in the basins and the Book of the Covenant and...
all of the people. Right? So it's raining on them, so to speak, in the way that when the soldier pierces Jesus, instead of breaking his legs, blood and water water flow forth, and it's that blood is... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sorry I didn't think to bring that out, but it pops. Yeah, and in the scourging too, blood spattering. This is maybe more apparent on film, say, in the Passion than in the text itself. But you definitely have the same elements of the sprinkling. I mean, that's um, in connection with that. I would have been more prepared to talk about Isaiah 53. Um, so bear what Fatherworth just said. Behold, this is 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were, and there's a translational, oh no, not here, sorry. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he startle or sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So there's that idea, too, of this, um, this situation in which uh, God's servant is lifted up, and he is... Um, I mean, whether it's sprinkle, which is what, what also happens at the cross, or the confession of the centurion, surely this was the Son of God. He was startled at this discovery, which is... So wh- whichever way you go in the translation there, it's, it's all there. Yeah. But yeah, sorry, I kind of fumbled 24, but it's a great one to reflect on, too. Yeah, but once again, it's not consumed there, but it is in the Mass. Because now it's, yeah, it's it's about getting the interior house. Water, thankfully, yeah. Yeah. Well, and water is used strategically in the consecration as well, right? It's not just wine. It's water and wine together. Yeah. So, the affiliation there. Yeah. All this, all these uh, connections in the Catholic. I mean, it's, it's so saturated with stuff. It's so different from when I was in the evangelical world. It's, yeah. Um, but they're all very much aids for our faith. And they all mean things more than just clever connections. These are these are real substantial issues. Any other thoughts or questions? And we can close with prayer. But they're all very much aids for our faith. And they all mean things more than just clever connections. These are these are real substantial issues. Any other thoughts or questions? And we can close with prayer. Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, stpeterlincoln.com. God bless you.